Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tay. Today, after a week with several brazen and violent crimes in our biggest city, the new police minister joins us live. In the last few months, India has become the most populous country in the world. So what will it take to get a trade deal over the line? And five months from the election, we're turning our focus to some of the most interesting electric contests in this year's race, and we're beginning up north in Northland. We got more from Shane Jones and that billion dollars than we ever got from any other politician. We'll have that for you shortly. The government is expanding an early intervention program it says is helping to cut youth offending and ram raids. But the announcement in this week's budget comes in the shadow of several high-profile violent crimes, a brazen public beating at the foot of Queen Street, a daytime smash and grab at a shopping mall, and a road rage incident which resulted in a teenage girl being shot. Police Minister Ginny Anderson is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, good morning, Jack. I wanted to begin by reflecting on Loafers Lodge this week because I know a lot of police staff have been involved in the response to that and I can only imagine it is a traumatic and pretty grim task. So, so I just wondered if you had any thoughts um, as to the first responders who are working there. Look, it's been a, it's a tragic event for the whole of Wellington, but particularly for the Newtown community, which it's really impacted. But those first responders that were on the scene quickly have worked tirelessly around the clock and in some of the most difficult conditions. So my full um, admiration and respect to them and their families that have been working long hours over the past few days. Okay. Let's talk about the budget. So the budget delivered uh, an operating allowance of almost $5 billion, so almost $5 billion in new spending. How much of that $5 billion is going to police? Well, we're doing things in a new way in the justice sector. So last year, we got a multi-year appropriation, which mm. was $2.7 billion for justice. That includes courts, police, mm. a whole range of integrated things that need to work together. And police as part of that was $925 million. Mm. So that was last year. What about this year? So that's over three years. Mm. So they're big projects like introducing a new secure radio network, having the tactical response model, for mm. frontline police, making sure we reach 1,800 police. All those things need to be funded on an ongoing basis. Mm. And that's a good thing for the justice sector because a lot of those problems we're trying to address are long-term intergenerational mm. ones. And the trouble with just having a one-year budget is if things like Cyclone Gabriel comes along, mm. that can displace funding, which we're trying to address things like family harm. Yeah. I understand that, but, but of that $4.8 billion in new spending announced this year, how much went to police? Uh, so that money was set aside in last budget of $2.7 billion and $925 million of that was allocated over three years. That was mm. locked in for this year as well. Under the budget, you are expanding two programmes. The tactical response model you just mentioned in Kotahi Te Whakaro, which is a circuit breaker programme for offenders aged 10 to 13. That's being expanded from parts of Auckland into Hamilton and Christchurch. Why isn't it going to Northland? Uh, well, I'm always keen to see where else we can take the programme. It started out in um, the south of Auckland, into counties Monaco. They've put it into Waitamata. Uh, the initial programme was seeing around 72 to 82 per cent of young people who went through that programme were not reoffending. So we've put that into Auckland Central, Hamilton, and also Christchurch. Why not Northland? Uh, I'm keen to get updates and see um, one of the main reasons it works well is it's police partnering with communities. Mm. So the launch so we did they on... They wouldn't do that in Northland? Uh, so when there's an operating model where we've got those partners already around the table working, they're the areas that police have identified 
by working with Oranga Tamariki where we can make it work I, I the best. I understand that you haven't answered that question though. Why not Northland? Uh, from the information we've had, we want to make sure those relationships are working well in place before we invest further. But I want to see it, I would love to see it rolled out around the whole country. When you took the job, you said you would work every day to make New Zealand communities feel safer. Are New Zealand communities today safer than when Labor took power in 2017? I believe we are safer with 1,800 more police officers on the beat, and that's what we'll achieve next month. To be clear, you think New Zealand communities are safer today than in 2017? I think more police on the beat make our communities safer. But I'd also say that with programmes like the Retail Crime Prevention Programme, mm. which provides bollards, security cameras, a whole range of features uh, for those businesses who have been victims of an aggravated robbery or a okay. ram raid, and we've also got the MBEAM scheme, which provides a fog cannon. Okay. I hear from small business owners that those products do make them feel safer. All right, so you say New Zealand communities are safer today, but I want to run through a few key measures. Do you accept that between 2018 and 2022, retail crime incidents reported by police almost doubled in New Zealand? I do accept that, and one of the main reasons that is driving the increase of retail crime is a new app, which is really helpful, called Aurora, which enables small, low-level crime to be reported into police. And the use of that app has caused so much more crime at a lower level to be reported. So, so it's the reporting of the crime rather than the actual incidence of crime when it comes to retail crime that you say has increased? From looking at police statistics, the number went up significantly once police were receiving um, information from the Aurora app, which enables every retail owner to upload and report their own crime. Uh, OK, let's look at serious uh, assaults. Do you accept that between 2017 and 2022, the number of serious assaults reported by police has increased 121%? I do accept that, and a big part of the increase in violent crime is a result of two new offences that we introduced in 2018. One was specifically uh, uh, assault against a family member that was never an offence These previously. are serious assaults? Yes, they're still yeah. serious assaults and family harm. Uh, and the other one is restricted breathing, which is strangulation. Mm. So those two offences account for 70% of the uh, of the, uh, the aggravated assaults, the more serious offending uh, in that. And, and I want to be upfront, Jack, that we are open about the fact that the more we report family mm. harm, the greater the opportunity to uh, have those interventions that stop young people being exposed to family harm in their, in their, in their home place. So, so if you look more, bro more broadly at violent crime and you compare 2017 with 2022, do you accept that the number of acts intended to cause injury reported by police has increased by roughly 30%? Yes, we have seen increases in those areas and a big driver of all police business, including uh, those, those uh, more violent offending, is coming in the space of family harm. Right, so, so you're not actually contesting the reporting on that front. On when it comes to those acts intended to cause injury, you accept that in the last five years under Labor, the number of acts intended to cause injury have increased 30%. That is because we're seeing an approximately 40% increase in the reports of family harm. Mm. And the more that we get those reports in, we're able to partner with agencies to address those underlying causes of offending. And I want to be clear that there's a direct correlation between families experiencing high levels of, of family harm and young people then yeah. going out to offend. And if we're serious about reducing ram raids, reducing aggravated robberies that mm. young people are participating in, we need to address those drivers of crime, which is young people growing up seeing sexual violence and physical violence normalised mm. in their households. So, so why should New Zealanders feel safer? How do New Zealanders feel safer when you as Police Minister accept that retail crime incidents reported 
have almost doubled, that the number of serious assault under Labor have gone up 121% and that acts intended to cause injury, which is a broader category, has gone up 30%. How on earth should people feel safer? I would say that we that New Zealanders uh, will always continue to work to make New Zealanders feel safer. I'm passionate about mm. that. Uh, a big area that we've invested in is organised crime. So of those 1,800 additional police mm. that we funded, uh, 700 of those will be focused on organised crime. Operation Cobalt has had 35 thousand mm. charges brought by police against gang members and organised crime with weapons seized and drugs seized. There is more investment in our front line to be able to tackle organised crime right. than we have ever seen before. So you took over the portfolio in March. Gang numbers have increased by 268 members in March and April alone. There's no doubt about it. The influx of 501s to New Zealand has complicated... How many 501s have come to New Zealand uh, look in at, March and April? Look, there was... Uh, when, when I talk to frontline police and I go and visit when they're doing investigations yeah. in this space, they will say that while there haven't been a huge number... Uh, so in March and April, so, so 268 gang members in March and April, that's how much the, the, the number of gang members in New Zealand increased since you became minister. How many 501s arrived in New Zealand? I don't know that, that number. Um, nine months ago, in an effort to, to combat gangs' influence in New Zealand, the government introduced firearms protections orders. The law was specifically designed to stop dangerous gangs from having access to firearms. How many orders have been issued in those nine months? Two since? to date. Two? That's right. In nine months? Yeah, so would you like me to talk you... It's a firearm prohibition order, and would you like me to talk you through how they work? No, no. I mean, because I just, you need to understand that in what, order to understand well, why they Well, what is the point? I mean, this is... You, when, when, when this legislation was, in, was introduced, I mean, the government made a massive deal about trying to restrict dangerous gang members' access to guns. Firearm prevention orders were one of the top lines for, for, for doing that, and just two have been introduced in nine months. So when they were passed, what they do is they enable the judge at sentencing to place one upon a person. So once someone has... Uh, completed the criteria, which is a quite a serious offence, mm. uh, then there has to be a full investigation, charges laid and a court case. A court case can take up to six months in some of these instances. So there's only been two that's reached that point where there's a sentencing and a judge has been able to apply. They're not just pulled out of a wheat bix packet. A police mm. can't just lay one on someone when they're walking along the street. There's a clear process in place. How and effective is the tool then? Well, it's proving to be very tool. It's very effective. With it those was, two? Uh, well, there's only two. We'd probably want to see more so, and so see not, how they're so working. So very effective with but two. But it, it, it prevents that person who has proven to be dangerous around firearms yeah. from accessing firearms, and it gives the police the ability... Those, those two people? Yes, those two mm. people. It gives the police to search their house or their car to make sure they are not mm. associating with others or getting weapons. What role has reducing the prison population played in increasing crime rates? Well, it's to be clear that uh, while that we have set clear targets for wanting to have uh, are reducing the prison mm. population, which to me I think is, is um, at over $100,000 per person in prison is not a good use mm. of taxpayers' money. We haven't changed the laws. There's no change to sentencing since Labor has You've been You've certainly changed the prison population. The prison population's dropped by roughly 20% uh, in the same period that acts intended to cause injury in New Zealand under Labor have increased 30%. So violent crime's gone up 30%, the prison population's gone down 20%. How are those two things correlated? I think it's really difficult to draw strong correlations, particularly when the significant driver of violent crime is family harm. That's harm happening within families, mm. and that's the significant driver of youth offending that we're seeing. How do you know that the prison population reducing by 20%, that's a substantial number, hasn't impacted the violent crime rates? 
uh, it's really difficult to draw those correlations so you directly. Don't, you don't know that? I don't have a clear, I have not seen a study or any research that's drawn a correlation between those two. But it is important. Should you study those things? Uh, well, I, I don't think there has been research. I think there probably should be some to look at what those correlations are. But I think it's important to note that also what's affecting those people who mm. come back into the justice system is addiction, uh, is mental health, mm. and it's really important that we're wanting to long-term reduce the, the prison population. It's those reoccurring underlying factors that, that are really the, the problematic ones in our prison system. The IPCA report into the parliamentary protests identified significant shortfalls in protective equipment that was available to police at the time. What's being done to sort that? Uh, police are undertaking work to make sure that those things are in place. W when will they be in place? Oh, I haven't had a report from the Commissioner, but uh, out of those recommendations that were made by the IPCA, actions are being taken under each of those. You've pledged 1,800 new officers by the end of June. So according to your written questions, the number of officers in New Zealand, the total number of officers, dropped 57 in April. So in order to hit your target, including attrition, by my maths, you need a net gain of 155 officers in May and June. Can you give us an assurance today that you will hit that target by yes. the end of June? We're all on track to reach that target. No, I keep a close eye on it to make sure we make it. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, being at the graduating wing when we reach that 1,800. That's a commitment to make sure our communities are safer. And I'd like to point out that Yes, crime has become more brazen, and that does mm. make people concerned. But in so many instances, and I keep a close eye out on what happens mm. uh, in reports, that police have always gone in there and got someone really close. There's always an apprehension in most of these cases. And largely, that's due to the fact that we have a resourced police service. Mm. You said that New Zealanders are safer than when Labor took over. Do you think New Zealanders feel safer? Uh, I've always said that my aim as Police Minister is to try and make New Zealanders feel safer, and I'm doing mm. that in three ways. There's backing... Sorry, that's not what I asked. I'll, I'll let you come to those points in a moment. Do you think New Zealanders feel safer than when Labor took over in 2017? Uh, look, uh, I'm not going to be as bold to say that. I've always just said... Why not? Uh, because I haven't spoken to every single New Zealander to understand but how you they You as feel. Police Minister certainly have an interaction with both police and, and with people who interact with police. What is your sense of things? Well, people get different experiences in different places. Mm. I would say our frontline feel that they have better resources through more staff, through better kit, through um, better legislation in place to enable them to do their job. I would say small business owners who have had the benefit of the Retail Crime Prevention Scheme do feel safer. But then I speak you to think other... small, small business owners in New Zealand, do you think feel safer today than when Labor took over in 2017? I'm not talking about every single one, but the ones I have visited mm. and seen once they've had an installation of a fog cannon do feel safer. So, all right, once they've got a fog cannon or some bollards outside, they feel safer. That's what they tell me, yes. Yeah, why do they need those fog cannons and bollards? Uh, well, there has been really an impact of increased brazen crime. Mm. Uh, I'm not happy with that. I want to see that come down, and I will continue to do that. But the best way to bring that down is to continue to resource our police service. The reason I ask about this feeling and whether or not New Zealanders feel safer is that you have said your main focus as police minister is to make New Zealanders feel safer. So I want to know by which metric you are measuring that. Well, it's a goal. It's what I would like to do. I, I mm. don't know if you have a happy or a, or a safe meter within everybody. I think that's uh, probably an impossible task mm. to measure. So, so how will you know that you're succeeding? Uh, well, when I hear reports back, I will continue to work to bring down some of the high rates we've seen, particularly in those brazen crimes. But I think a good way of being able to do that is by continuing to resource our police service to mm. make sure that those frontline people who put their lives on the line every single day are resourced and have the tools, the rules and the ability to do their job well. I'm going to go back to those key metrics. 
Between 2018 and 2022, retail crime incidents reported by police doubled. Uh, between 2017 and 2022, the number of serious assaults increased 121%, and acts intended to cause injury went up almost 30%. Do you need to see those numbers come down for New Zealanders to feel safer? I think we do. But that's also why we have a big programme for family harm. Te Aurere is the first time we've seen mm. women's refuge community groups funded not only to respond to victims of family harm and sexual violence, but also to prevent it. Mm. This is a community problem. The level of violence in New Zealand homes is unacceptable and it's causing intergenerational hurt to our children. That's the stop that we need to, that's what we need to stop in order to really see those levels come down. And finally, uh, along with the budget announcements this week, you've announced a new policy whereby drivers that flee from police can That's have right. their vehicles impounded. What percentage of fleeing drivers are driving a vehicle they own? I don't have that breakdown, but we know that we have a range of vehicles and a common factor that frontline police tell me is that someone will drive another person's car and when they are stopped, they'll say, oh, this isn't my car, this is Barry's car. So what the new legislation does is it's that the, the registered owner of the car is required to give information mm. about who was driving their car at the time of the, the crime happened. Shouldn't we know that breakdown beforehand, though? Uh, look, police attend a whole range of different instances. Mm. Some of them are stolen. It wouldn't work so well in instances of a stolen vehicle. How many are stolen? Uh, I don't have the number of... Um, Again, shouldn't we know of, that before? ...of cars that are stolen on any given day. It peaks and troughs but given... But how many, how many stolen cars... Uh, how many of fleeing vehicles, how many are stolen? I'd say a good proportion of those are... But we don't... I don't have a breakdown with okay. me, I'm sorry. That's all right. Um, Police Minister Jenny Anderson, stay with us. Uh, you'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Q&A returns after the break. Hokimai, welcome back to Q&A. In Thursday's budget, the government announced a 20% rebate for New Zealand-based digital game developers. Jenny Anderson is back with her portai as the Minister for Digital Communications now. Um, why should video game developers get a 20% rebate? This is a small, hugely creative uh, group of great businesses that are batting well above their weight. We want to keep them here in New Zealand and make the most of what it offers our economy. How are they batting above their weight? Uh, 400 million in a year out, uh, out doing the wool industry currently. Right, but, but I mean, so is dairy. Uh, they, are, they hold potential to grow even further and it offers huge potential for our young people. So we have, uh, this is a long word, I'm sorry, mm. at, at the ITP. So it's an industry transformation plan. We have eight of them. Mm. Digital is one. So we've put 27 million in that to grow skills in this area. So young people from school to tech into these businesses can see a pathway and a career for themselves. It's down for $160 million. Is that, as, as in a, a total cost for government to cover this rebate, is that figure a bounded cap or could theoretically it go above 160 million well it's for four years that's yeah. for that period but is it bounded uh, well we'd, we'd, there's subsequent budgets in line well there would be new bids in the future should we wish to do that but so, so 160 million dollars so you know over over four years what is to stop the, the rebate going above that during that period? We want to see how it's going. We're currently undertaking consultation with all of those small businesses to see how it will work. We want to track and see how it's taken up. But is it bounded? Can, is it bounded? You mean, is that the end like, of is the... It, no, no, no. Is it, it, it like, if you hit the $160 million mark, do you say, oh, that's the end of that? Well, I would be, as Minister, going to having a chat with the Minister of Finance and saying, look how amazing this is. I think we should do some more. We should give more. Yeah, I would be doing that because I think it's a great sector. I'm into bat for them. But right now we've only got 160. But, but no, but this is my point. If you if you exceed the 160 million dollar mark, it, 
what happens? Well, you would put a fresh budget bid in and you would have a crack at trying to get more for the sector. Whether or not you get that is another question. I don't think we're understanding each other here, but if, if I mean... No, the video no game, there's no more. So 160 is it? Is it? So that yeah. is bounded. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I think. Um, no. Okay. That, that's good to clarify. So, so what is the general principle? by which the government decides to subsidise some industries and not others? Uh, well, we hear from the industry. So we would have lost. I heard loud and clear from Pickpock, from a whole lot of small, we amazing... Yeah, totally. We, we, we go around and talk and they say, we're being offered, we're being ag aggressively headhunted by Australian companies. Some of those businesses would have been $5 million better off to pick up and move to Australia. And we want them here in New Zealand. But, I mean, any industry could say that. Uh, well, they, they didn't. This was one industry we felt that uh, they offered great opportunities for our economy. We want to be positioning ourselves to be a high-wage, low-emissions mm. economy. This does exactly that. Mm. The video game sector um, previously complained about an unfair playing field when it was competing for talent with the subsidised film sector. You'll remember this. If the, if the subsidy helps to grow the video game industry and draws talent away from other parts of the IT sector and other parts of the IT sector complain about an unfair playing field, what will you do then? A lot of those skills are transferable. I think it's important we just grow the amount of skills in New Zealand. The one thing those uh, those businesses would tell me when I visit them is that they struggle to get that level of talent. What this subsidy does is it is able to go straight towards wages and so that they can employ more right. and they can pay at more competitive rates. But, but again, what's to... What's to stop other parts of the IT sector saying, hey, this is an unfair playing field. We're now competing with the video game sector that's subsidised. Uh, look, there, there, it, is, it is a subsidy to keep this sector here in New Zealand. I appreciate no, there'll but, be what, some... No, but this doesn't answer my question, though. What, 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 what's to stop other parts of the IT sector saying, hey, these guys are taking all of our talent now because they're subsidised, which is a market distortion. It's unfair. I would, I would still argue that those transferable skills, if you're growing one part, are able to be utilised. And if there's, more, um, if there's more competition in our sector, it will grow our tech sector. It offers potentially... The but it's whole not competition, that's the point. <laughs> You're subsidising it. You well, look, we can't subsidise every business, is the truth of it, and this work, this is a sector that we know holds a whole lot of potential for our economy, right. it holds a whole lot of potential for our young people, and we want to invest in it to make sure it stays here. So what will happen if Australia subsidises its sector further? Uh, already Australia's uh, scheme outstrips ours. We don't have as deeper pockets as Australia and we can't hope to outbid them and it, it won't be a bidding war. What this subsidy does is it keeps this industry here in New Zealand and gives those businesses a future here. How long is this going to be in place for? Just the four years? Uh, we want to see how it goes, but I, I think it's an amazing sector when I've learned about it. Uh, I know it's uh, particularly a good place for our kids to be mm. thinking about careers in the space. Mm. Uh, and and uh, I guess one of the most common misperceptions about it as a sector is you don't have to be a software engineer or no machine code. Mm. It's people who think outside the square. People who are on the spectrum do incredibly well in this space. Mm. It offers so many potential um, opportunities for young people. I thought it was so important to make sure we keep it here and grow it. It's a great signal to other private sectors, isn't it? If you lobby the government you can get a tax rebate. Well, when we know there's a, a, a very aggressive move from Australian companies to take our people, we wanted mm. to make sure we kept it here, and that's what this scheme has done. Digital Communications Minister, Jenny Anderson. Tēnā thanks for your time. Thank you. If you want to contact Q&A, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook.
Coming up, given it's budget week and given it is an election year, the return by popular demand of the famous Q&A political panel. Bread and butter or blowout? We ask how Grant Robertson's spending plans will ultimately impact the election campaign. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins is en route to Papua New Guinea for several meetings with Pacific leaders and a bilateral meeting with India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. This year, India became the world's most populous country. It has a growing middle class. And with ongoing tensions between China and some of our oldest allies, many see India as a prime example of an export market with massive growth potential. Rahul Sen is a senior lecturer at AUT and a fellow at the New Zealand India Research Institute. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, good morning. So, India is now the, mo the world's most populous country. From an economic and geopolitical perspective, how do you see its place in the world in the coming decades? Well, uh, India is uh, right now the fifth largest economy in the world, and it's likely to overtake uh, Germany by 2026, uh, if the way that it's growing, you know, it continues to grow like that. And it might well be the third largest economy by 2030. So it's growing at a phenomenal pace, a country of 1.4 billion people, uh, estimated to grow at over 6% this year and probably faster uh, over the coming years. So, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the economic importance, certainly, uh, you know, India is, is becoming one of the biggest uh, economies in the world. It's pretty much set to become one of the biggest economies in the world in the coming decades. Yeah. And certainly the center of geopolitical and geoeconomic activity is shifting to India, and I guess it will increasingly shift more to India in the next few years. So how do you assess New Zealand's relationship with India as it stands right now? Well, uh, New Zealand's relationship with India, if I would put it in, you know, very, uh, very shortly, uh, in very few words, essentially is that, you know, we, we are pretty much uh, not really uh, at the level that we should be in terms of our engagement with India. India, uh, I mean, if you look at the numbers, we are not even, India is not even uh, uh, among the top 10 trading partners of New Zealand and quite, uh, for quite some time. And in fact, uh, over the last five years, our bilateral exports have fallen by a billion dollars. So right. clearly, in terms of the trading relationship, we have sort of fallen off the radar, if you look at it, uh, mm. uh, with India uh, over the last five years well, or so. Why do you think that is, Rahul? Oh, well, one of the key reasons is because uh, I think uh, the expectation a uh, couple of years back is that we were going to get a free trade agreement which will allow New Zealand businesses to get, you know, goods access, um, uh, particularly looking at our key export markets, mm -hmm. uh, uh, export businesses into India. But uh, I think uh, at that point of time, what was, wasn't realized is we were only looking at what, uh, you know, what goods we can sell in India, but we were not really looking at what India can do for us and what we could do for the growth and development of India. Right. And uh, I think uh, that's one key point which has been sort of missed in terms of the relationship, that yeah. India is a bit of a different market. You know, you cannot just aim for selling goods and services. Uh, yeah. You have to look at a long-term development partnership in terms of increasing investments Right, in India. Right. Yeah. See, that is very interesting. I want to compare mm. New Zealand and its relationship with India with Australia's relationship with India. And mm. Australia not only has a much closer trading relationship, but also mm. potentially a, a closer um, cultural and, mm. and geopolitical um, relationship. So, in fact, we've got some pictures recently of the Australian Prime Minister, mm -hmm. Anthony Albanese, meeting with 
uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi there. I believe they are touring Narendra Modi Stadium. What is Australia doing that New Zealand should be doing? Well, Australia, first of all, I think has a very clear early mover advantage here in the relationship with India. They had a very clear-cut 2035 India economic strategy. They exactly knew where to approach, which states to approach. They took a state-specific strategy. And I think that's really important for India because India is a huge market, there's yeah. huge diversity. You need to look at it in terms of its regional potential. See, that is very yes. interesting. Instead of looking at India yes. as, a, as a singular country or as a monolith exactly. block, it's actually very diverse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's from there that they took the relationship to the next level. Mm. And uh, one of the key reasons I think the Australia-India relationship is really also fostered is because both countries have realized that you need to have an economic risk diversification, mm. particularly you know, post-COVID. You cannot rely on one single trading partner so heavily. And uh, I mean, I'll give you a very interesting example. If you look at India's trading partners, China is the second largest trading partner. Mm. But then India is trading, you know, as a uh, uh, trading relationship is growing with Australia as well. Mm. Now, here in New Zealand, we, we are very much focused on our trading relationship with one single trading partner. Almost 30% of our trade is with one mm. single trading partner. So, you know, there's a huge opportunity to diversify our economic risks here with India. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's, that's uh, you know, where we should be headed. Let's just have a quick look at, at New Zealand's exports to India break, broken down by sector. So we've mm. got the numbers for 2022. And mm. if you're watching at home, have a look at that. <laughs> Run your eyes over the list. Now keep in mind that uh, given this is 2022, uh, education doesn't feature as prominently as you might expect it to. But what else is missing? If you go through all of those exports, what is missing? It is, of course, dairy. What happens for New Zealand when it goes to India and says we want to expand our dairy exports? I think uh, from the Indian negotiator's point of view, uh, if you look at, and, and coming back to your earlier question on you know, what's Australia doing with India. So again, if you look at the Australia-India uh, economic uh, cooperation trade agreement, dairy is kind of out of scope at this yeah. moment. Yeah. But what has been achieved is that uh, there is tariff, you know, uh, there has been some tariff concessions on some very critical products for mm. Australia's exports to India and likewise for India's exports to Australia. Mm. But the important part of it is there's a mobility partnership agreement which has been signed along with that. There is a professional working group which is looking towards movement of professionals. Mm. So basically getting the access to India's growing pool of skill and talent. Right. And that's something which I think we need to add on here. If we are very serious in terms of taking this relationship towards that trade agreement, and if I might say a comprehensive economic cooperation partnership. Right. So we are not talking about just a free trade agreement in terms of tariff concessions, but it's also going to be looking very much into trade and services because that's where India has you know, the potential. Right. And I think that's where the partnership opportunity lies for so the So to be term. totally clear, for people watching at home, hmm. Indian trade negotiators are very unlikely, in your view, to allow expanded access to New Zealand dairy uh, exporters. Well, if I may put it in this way, uh, Fontra is already there mm. in India. You know, uh, There is a dreamery uh, line of products already uh, in India mm. where there's some partnership going on. And there can always be opportunities for technological partnership, which right. can improve the productivity. And I think that could be the starting point 
for looking at providing more access to, you know, right. New Zealand dairy As exporters. opposed to exporting yes. milk solids, yeah. for example. Because as, as I said before, the relationship has to start based on trust. Because yeah. in India, you know, a lot of businesses are family-based business. They're based on trust. Yeah. So you have to develop that trust that, yeah. you know, you're a reliable partner. You're not here to, you know, take away <laughs> our uh, competitive dairy yeah. products from us. And we can partner with you. We can grow with you. We can improve the productivity of our uh, dairy products, our horticultural products. That's, again, another great example where New Zealand-India partnership is. And I think once, you know, that trust is established, I, I see this as a pathway to that comprehensive economic cooperation agreement which I believe we should see yeah. of New Zealand with India in the coming few years. Periodically, rhetoric against Indians in New Zealand, mm. um, particularly around migrant workers and international students, mm. flares up. Mm -hmm. It can be ugly at times. Mm -hmm. Does the domestic politics of New Zealand influence how we are seen by India? Uh, I think to some extent that might be true. Mm. Uh, although, you know, as an economist, you know, I'm not in a position to actually comment on some of these sensitivities yeah. that, that, are, that are there. But one of the things that I would like to highlight, and this was reflected in a report a couple of years back, that Indians in New Zealand are contributing about $10 billion to the GDP. Right. We are 5% of the population. So, uh, we, uh, you know, even when international students are coming in, they are ultimately contributing to our workforce. They are ultimately contributing to our skills and talent. And I think, uh, you know, that recognition needs to be there that, you know, uh, Indians are, uh, when we are looking at that mobility partnership, as I was talking about, mm -hmm. and this was alluded to by Foreign Minister Jayashankar when he was here, India's mm -hmm. Foreign Minister. I think that's, that's the way forward, you know, to mm. take this relationship to the next level, uh, as you will. Uh I know that one thing that has concerned some observers is mm. the progression mm. of uh, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Some see him as an authoritarian figure or mm -hmm. draw attention to the to the Hindu nationalist policies mm -hmm. and philosophy held by many within his BJP party. Mm. Should that be a concern for New Zealand going forward? I do not see that as a concern simply because in my view, I see uh, Prime Minister Modi as a very decisive leader. His, his style of leadership is very decisive. If you want to get things done, it just gets done. You know, you, there are no delays, you know, in, in that plan or project. Mm. And if you look at the way that particularly India's economic development has happened, and just giving examples in terms of the infrastructure, it's, it's just happening at a phenomenal pace. And I think this is where, and that's where I think, uh, you know, uh, the economic growth of India is going to take off with mm. all this infrastructure that's that's happening around and uh, as uh, you know i mentioned earlier as well you know new zealand is is, is a bit far behind in terms of uh, looking at this phenomenal growth that's happening in india and a lot of that is because of uh, prime minister modi and if i might add to that as well right. uh, uh, prime minister modi uh, you know has this unique way of communicating with his citizens mm. you know in terms of what is his vision what are the challenges that common men are facing? Mm. He talks to them directly through this program called Monkey Bath, which sort of comes right. every month. And through that, it's, it's really interesting to observe that he has actually revived a lot of traditional Indian export sectors like handicrafts and traditional medicines mm. and things like that. So um, I see him as a very decisive leader who has a vision for India to be taken forward mm. in the next few decades. So I absolutely believe that from the New Zealand government perspective, 
if we are serious about having that long-term development partnership mm. where, you know, we can do things in India and therefore we will, of course, in return, probably also get what we want from India. Yeah. Hey, thank you very much. We Thanks. really appreciate your time. I know there will be some people who um, take issue, perhaps, at your um, characterisation of uh, Prime Minister Modi. We really appreciate your insights, Rahul. Sure. That is Rahul Sen. He's uh, a senior lecturer at AUT and a fellow at the New Zealand India Research Institute. After the break on Q&A, less than five months from the election, the first stop on Q&A's electorate road trip, the contest and the characters in Northland. Hawkey Meyer, welcome back. As we approach the October election, Q&A is going to take a close look at some of the most interesting electorate contests in this year's campaign. And we're starting at the very top. Generally solidly blue, the Northland electorate seat was won in 2020 by just 163 votes by Labour's Willow Jean Prime. But as Fina Owen discovered, the potential contenders this year include more than just national candidates. It's a bumpy ride on the way to Mangataroto, where we'll catch up with Northland's national candidate. I've heard about these roads. The thing is that the condition of the roads in Northland have always been an election issue, and this two-way road through the Waipu Gorge is used as the route north when the Brindurans are the state of Northland's roads is issue number one for beef and dairy farmer Grant McCullum. Compared to the rest of the country, our roads are rubbish. He'll be pushing for an alternative route round the Brindurwins if he clinches this seat. The Northland electorate's been solidly national, apart from New Zealand First picking up a by-election and Labour taking the seat last election by just 163 votes. Smallest uh, majority in the country. The smallest majority, so you, you, are, you are in with a chance, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, in with a chance, but got to work hard. Grant McCullum fits your traditional national candidate profile. A farmer and long-time National Party member. He's also been active in the Blue-Greens. Oh, and he has a three-legged dog called Lou. I didn't have him very long. He jumped over some yard, the yards yeah. and got hooked up. North needs a champion. That's, that's where I really... It's one that motivates me as much as anything. I feel, oh, so and you think you're the champion, Grant? I think I can be the champion, yes. You know, if the people of the North trust me enough to give me that privilege, I'd absolutely love to be. Up in Kirikiri, we've gatecrashed a coffee morning with these locals who have issues with the town's proposed state housing development and what they say is a crime wave. The bowling club, we've been robbed there three times. They took the bloody lot, everything. I don't think they're coming down hard enough on, on petty crime. So in terms of this election, who do you think is going to do the work for you then? We got more from Shane Jones and that billion dollars than we ever got from any other politician. But we're not here to meet Shane Jones just yet. So how are you polling at the moment? Look, our last poll was 1.6%. Matt King won the Northland seat for National in 2017. He resigned from the party last year and launched Democracy NZ after attending the Parliament occupation. What do you say to people, because I've heard it up here, oh, Matt King's a good guy, but he's gone down the rabbit hole? Look, what I'd say to that is that 
I stuck up for people's freedom to choose and the National Party would not um, back me on this. And I, I believe fundamentally you should have the choice of what you put in your body. Body autonomy is paramount to me. So, so you, you're twice vaccinated, aren't you? Yeah, I am, yeah. We're not anti-vax, we're, we're, we're anti-mandate. The best chicken burger in Kiri Kiri? Yeah, Matt King is well known around here as a farmer, a former MP, and at one stage a local cop. Oh, good man. When I get home, yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you for that. You're a good man. Like I don't know this guy. I just I know I know he's local, but I don't know I don't know him. So you didn't set this up. I didn't set it up. No, I didn't set it up. Over in Moirewa, we checked in with locals about what they think Northland needs. I need better reads. Better reads. There's too many potholes on the road, I guess. Labor's done great for us up here. Roading. Housing. Is there a certain like uh, skill in driving around potholes? Because I found it really difficult. Yeah, just probably get a four-wheel drive. Don't forget your takeaways. Yeah. Northland's incumbent MP Willow Jean Prime is also a Morewa local. She's now in cabinet with the youth and conservation portfolios. Across there, there's a big spillway that's capturing a whole lot and then letting it drain into here and through here. Today she's taking us to a flood mitigation project. Over the last decade, this valley, its homes and marae have been hit by floods. So this is a demonstration of what a local MP can do for you when they know the community, they know the issues and they know how to work Parliament. But taking the seat with the tiniest majority last time, how does she think she'll do in October? You just have to go out there, stand on your record, um, ask for that vote again, ask for that um, support from your community to be able to continue um, the work on their behalf. And I think for those that have worked with me, who, have, who know me, who have seen what we can achieve when we do that, I'm hoping that I will continue to get their vote. Raina, hi. Oh, look, I'm sorry, we're so late. Oh, that's absolutely yeah. fine. Come in. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Long drive out here. Yeah. With a background in law and housing advocacy, Raina Tuai Penny is the Northland candidate for the Greens. I think that our voice is vital. We're talking about clean water, we're talking about climate change adaption, which is actually happening right now. And she says her Mangamuka community is living with the effects of climate change. I drive an hour 20 to take my kids to school. Do you? Each way, yeah. That's because State Highway 1 to Kaitaia is still impassable due to slips. Isn't there a roadblock up here? Yeah. So why are these cars coming up here? So they can't actually go through here? No, they're locals. They're having a nosy. <laughs> I think it's a yeah, yeah. <laughs> You heard me saying a prayer fall. And our next candidate has had four unsuccessful attempts at trying to clinch a Northland seat. This will be his fifth attempt. Quite frankly, you should judge me based on the quality of our historical effort and our contribution, which is beyond debate. Shane Jones took just over 11% of the vote last election, coming in third. This time round, New Zealand First's campaigning for Northland on urgently needed infrastructure, law and order and supporting businesses. Historically, both large parties have taken the North for granted. National has had this seat uh, since JC was a cowboy and they've done bugger all with it. Labour just take it for granted and they've coasted along and capitalised on the work that New Zealand First funded. The Moirewa flood project, he says, is a case in point. 
In actual fact, it was New Zealand first who found the money to upgrade flooding infrastructure and resilience in Moirewa. Today, the New Zealand First candidate's getting help with his pamphlet drop from a forestry crew he refers to as the NEFs. Don't worry, they said, oh, you're going to go on TV, and they said, no, 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 Crime Watch, Crime Watch. So we've got an enormous number of public meetings, going to paper the North and also um, show humility and go and door knock. And, and go and door knock? Yes, yes. Is that not your strong point in campaigning? Uh, well, it's such a long way to travel to these small areas like Waimamaku. Thanks for your support, mate. But he's promised the boss he'll get out there among the voters and the candidates who all want to be the champion of the North. Fina Owen in Northland. Keep an eye on her electorate profiles as she heads around the country. After the break, a big week in the political calendar and a big year in the political cycle. We will ask our panel what this week's budget means for October's election. Grant Robertson delivered his sixth budget as Finance Minister on Thursday, a milestone in any political year, but one which takes on an extra prominence ahead of an election campaign. So, for our first panel of election season, NZME's Head of Business, Fran O'Sullivan, and CEO of Community Law, former Labour MP, Sue Maroney. Kia ora kōrua. Fran, I'll start with you. What did you make of the budget? Well, I think it was very much setting up uh, the government uh, in particular for the election. Um, real play for the female vote in a cost of living crisis. Women are major um, swing voters and I think it will consolidate Labour, uh, particularly among young women or younger women who have children, you know, the um, issues around free child, mm. childhood care, all of that. I mean, these are major for women who want to get back into the workforce. And in a cost of living crisis, you generally need both parents working. Mm. I, think, I think it was smart. And there's also plenty of money aside, which they can use in a creative way when you get into the campaign. Though they will distinguish and say that's Labour's policies rather than the government's. Mm. So. I also thought it was a smart campaign, uh, sorry, a smart budget, I should say, um, because everything that is new spending actually has a double double whammy. So they're getting really good bang for buck. So, for example, the, the uh, prescription costs coming down or going completely, that not only helps with cost of living, but it helps take the pressure off our health system. Uh, retrofitting homes not only helps with cost of living and power bills, but it also ensures that we're dealing with climate change. So there were a number of mm. announcements that actually had at least two things that would benefit. Um, and in a, in a climate where... It was a very tricky budget because most other countries are dealing with cost of living mm. alone and finding that hard enough. We're having to deal with cost of living, the impact of the cyclones and, you know, everything associated with that. So it was a very tricky balancing act and I think they got it right. Tell you what, though, it is a big spend. That operating allowance, $4.8 billion. That is that is massive. And interesting to see several economists off the back of the budget are now picking a 50 basis point hike in the OCR this week. Will we still be calling it a smart budget, Fran, if indeed the Reserve Bank lifts the OCR by 50 Well, obviously there's a bit of a game of chicken there between Grant Robertson and the Reserve Bank. But the Reserve Bank also does have to realise that um, the major spend needed for the cyclone recovery is real. I mean, it's just not magicked up. Mm -hmm out of anywhere, but it does have an impact on inflation. Uh, but more particularly also other issues which will help on perhaps avoiding a recession, as Treasury has said, one, that cyclone rebuild, also the increase in immigration. 
and um, also other issues there, um, you know, which just kind of play in and make it, you know, you perhaps you avoid the recession, mm. but part of the price of that is higher inflation, higher interest rates, higher mortgage rates. So it's a, it's a tricky thing. Yeah. Well, well, how will things change if the, if the Reserve Bank raises the OCR by 50 basis points this week? Oh, well, I think that the um, Reserve Bank has um, frequently, and over the course of the last 12 months, raised the OCR slightly higher than what predictions were. Mm. So I don't think you can necessarily read anything into that about being about the budget. Well, if the, well, if the Monetary Policy Committee comes out on uh, later this mm. week and says, actually, you know, we were looking at a 25 basis point hike, but essentially we've gone to a 50 point hike because of the size of the fiscal spend, mm -hmm. That has to be damaging for the government. Well, it's, it's pretty difficult to think about why the budget might cause that when it's still staying within um, the low 30s of GDP in terms of um, the spend, uh, in terms of percentage of GDP, and the debt levels remain um, actually internationally very, very low well, compared with other countries. you have an operating allowance of $4.8 billion and you have inflation sitting at 6.7%, that's how, right? Well, that's right, and that, that's the issue that every country is mm. trying to grapple with. We're not alone in this. But I think that we do actually have an edge over other countries because of all of those, um, all of the actions that we took during the COVID period of time mm. that we all individually took and the hard decisions the government took has put us in a better position to actually deal with these issues. And you can see that the government's taking the opportunity to try and deal with all of those pressures across the board. And, um, and you know, what would you do? Would you um, not spend on cyclone recovery? Would you not address the cost of living issues that they're trying to address? These are the things that they've had to balance that I think mm. they've got it about right. What did you make of the change to the uh, top tax rate for trusts? Oh, I, th I thought um, uh, it was uh, a long time coming. It should have been there for, uh, for some time previously. But the big elephant in the room still remains no capital gains tax. And I think that's a discussion that we still have to have as a country. Uh, we've, we now know how unfair mm. the, the whole tax regime is. If we want to actually get our accounts in order so that we are not creating the, some of the issues that you've just alluded to, then we have to think about how we get that fair tax in place um, and, and make sure that it, it's spent appropriately. Do you think the government's going to be interested in a, in a serious conversation around changing tax settings ahead of October? Well, when are they going to be a Labour government? I mean, capital gains taxes have been on the agenda with Labour for a very long time. Mm. Uh, the condition, preconditions are there in my view. And now, um, if, you, if you're ever going to have a go at us as a country, I think now is the time is right to have that conversation. Uh, personally, I think capital gains taxes, as opposed to wealth taxes, is a mm. smarter move. Mm. But, um, you know, you've also got um, a resurgence national party, to a degree, uh, with a welter of money, big money behind it on the donation side. Mm. You know, they're running 10 times in the last calendar year what Labor got, you know, $5 million to much less. Mm. And that money does not want to see capital gains taxes. So it's a very, you know, it's a very tough environment. Mm. Um, but, you know, if Labor has soul, I think it should do. It should put it on the table. Mm. Um, let's talk about national. I was interested to watch Christopher Luxon in the House after Grant Robertson delivered that budget because it has to be just one of the toughest days for the opposition leader. You get about an hour or so to try and pour through, you know, a hundred and however many pages of information and numbers before coming out and making a 20-minute speech in the House. I thought Christopher Luxon did very well, personally, uh, in the House the other day. But how do you make... Uh, what, what do you make of... Um, the way his leadership is being critiqued at the moment and considered, given that 
maybe 12 months ago, many thought that National were the odds-on favourite to win this election. Well, I think what the budget did was uh, it really exposed the opposition because they still haven't worked out quite what to say about it. They're at sixes and sevens about it. Um, and I think that they've now put themselves in a position where people can see that their one-trick pony idea of um, cutting in income tax, and that's all they've got to offer, is going to end up with cutting public services. You know, they've already said that they will scrap the the, um, the, the prescription um, yeah, uh, the right off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, people can now see what um, having a national government will mean. Um, so it's going to be very interesting. I think that um, Nicola Willis is very, very ambitious. She's, uh, I, I certainly, um, in 2007, I led a, a, a trip of um, young political leaders mm. to Australia. She was the National Party nominee way back then. And it was clear, even back in 2007, that um, she was working very hard on her political future and she was going to take no prisoners along the way. But, but come on. There's no evidence of a coup anywhere, is there? There's, this well, happens, it's this a, happens all the time. We hear these little murmurs and everything. Well, but. I think the only only way in which she could take the leadership before mm. the election is if Luxon stepped aside willingly. And that would only be, I think, if there was a complete pulse plunge and then they need to get into a stop loss close mm. to the election. Uh, Labor managed it with um, Jacinda Ardern and Andrew Little, but Andrew Little stepped aside. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to do that and it's another to mount a coup where you will make enemies and mm. you won't get it over the line anyway. And arguably, you will just ruin uh, Nationals' chances because the one thing Luxon has done is he's actually united them as a team. He, his own ratings are frankly abysmal, but he's actually got the party up to a degree. And, 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 and I mean... To be fair, there are a couple of other factors here. First of all, we don't actually have a presidential-type campaign, although perhaps some of the media coverage contributes to something akin to a presidential-type campaign. But also, as soon as someone becomes Prime Minister, those preferred Prime Minister yeah, polls yeah. go north, right? Yeah, we see this do. every time. They do. But uh, just, just thinking about, um, you know, Luxon, mm. I mean, if you, if you go back to 2017, mm. when Labor swapped out to Jacinda... Uh, the vote in the campaign was only 37% or so compared to Nationals' 45%. She was crowned by Winston Peters. Mm. She wasn't ahead. So, I mean, that party vote works um, to, to a large degree. Uh, he may get there, but it's much tougher because mm. Chris Hipkins is a real political animal. Um, Labor has managed an mm. absolutely flawless transition from one leader to mm. another. Mm -hmm. You don't hear much about Jacinda anymore. Um, that big bet that business and national had made last year where they thought they could cruise to victory in October, that's gone. Mm. Okay. People will be very nervous about Christopher Luxon's personal ratings. Mm. Um, the people who want to see a national government in place will get increasingly nervous about that. So we'll see what happens when election jitters um, mm. start to break out. It's going to be a fascinating few months. Thank you so much for your time. Our Pleasure. panel this morning, Sue Maroney and Fran O'Sullivan. Kumutu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. Nā mihiki a koutou ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey, tērā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.